Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. Okay, tonight we're going to look at uh, Joshua chapter 7. We're going to look at the title as Losses in the Land of Victory, which is crazy, huh? How could you, be, how could you lose in the land of victory or slash sin in the camp? This is part one, so we're going to break the chapter into halves. And um, the way I want to begin this is how many of you guys you follow sports? How many have a favorite sports team? Right? I know Steve, you're Dallas. I know you're in pain right now, but that's another story. But, um, um, but, but if you have a favorite sports team, your favorite sports team, we've all experienced this where um, your, your team, let's say your team is really, really good, and they're playing a team that's just mediocre, and your team on paper, stat-wise, one loss record, your team should win, right? But then they play the game, and then your team ends up losing to a team they should not have lost to. And you sit there and you're watching the game and you know in the third quarter when you're losing, if you had your head coach's number, you would call him and tell the head coach what he's doing wrong. And when, right? Because you know what's better, right? Amen. Okay, okay, none of you. But you walk, after the game's over and your, your team loses, you scratch your head and you wonder, how in the world did we lose to that team? We all have been there, right? How did that happen? Well... Joshua is now in that place. They are, they, they're going to lose a battle to a place called Ai. They just conquered Jericho. And they're going to lose. And he's going to wonder, he's going to scratch his head going, how in the world did we lose? How could we have lost this battle when it's just a little dinky place compared to Jericho, which we just took down? And so that's where we're going to begin. Now, as we begin, keep that thought in here and turn to Romans. Keep your finger on Judges, uh, Joshua 7. Turn to Romans chapter 15. And I want to brush up against an idea here as we look at losses in the land of victory. And I want you to keep this kind of idea in your head. When you're in Romans chapter 15, say, hey, I'm there. Hey, I'm there. Oh, good, you said, hey, all right. <laughs> you could say, hey, 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 I'm there. No, don't say that. Uh, look at Romans 15. And look at verse 4, and it says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. One of the cool things about the Scriptures is an element of it is it was written, it's recorded for your and my instruction. We can look at the things that have happened. We can, we can relate to it because we're human, they're human. And we can learn from it and we can learn perseverance because we get to read it and we don't just see the beginning and middle. We get to see the beginning, middle, and end of their story, which gives us hope because we might be right now in the beginning or middle of something. And so we know from those experiences, we can have hope that it's going to be a good ending to our situation because we serve the same God that they serve. Amen? Now, let's go back to Joshua chapter 1. So we're going to look at Joshua's life and we're going to examine it because it was written for our instruction. So verse 1 begins like this. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully, say unfaithfully, in regard to the things under the ban. Do you guys remember the ban? 
the band at Jericho, mm -hmm. not the band, but the band, okay? For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, say Judah, Judah. took some of the things under the band. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Now, it begins in chapter 7. We have a problem. And the problem is that Israel has acted unfaithfully. And he tells us how they acted unfaithfully. He names a guy. The guy's name is Achan. And we know from this that he took some of the stuff under the ban. Now, if you don't remember the ban, really quickly look at chapter 6, verse 18 and 19. And it says, But as for you, only keep yourself. This is his instruction to the people when they're going to take Jericho. Uh, keep yourselves uh, from the things under the ban so that you do not covet them and take some of the things under the ban and make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So you can't take anything from the city. And the gold and the silver, etc., etc., it belongs to God. In this city, you take that with you, but you bring it to the treasury of the Lord. Now, Achan, he disobeys this. And God, you saw it right there. You're going to bring a curse upon your people if you disobey this thing right there, this, this ban. And we have said before, Jericho is the first city that they will take in the promised land. And therefore, it parallels the idea of the first fruits always belong to God. Amen? The first things always belong to God. What's interesting to me, remember in chapter 7, verse 1, what tribe of Israel is Achan from? Judah. What does Judah the word mean? Praise. And think about that. You have a man from the tribe of Judah who has taken something that belongs to God. Isn't that interesting? That a Christian can come to church and sing praises to God all the while while we're singing praises to God still rob God in the offering while they're in church. Ow! Amen? amen. If you can't say amen, say ow. Okay, one or the other. Now, now, uh, now, what's interesting, another interesting thing is this. In verse 1, he says, the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully. He doesn't say that old uh, Achan has acted unfaithfully. He says the sons of Israel. In other words, it's, it's everybody. He's got the whole thing. Now, why is that? Remember that the word, uh, the, the sentence I told you to write down? Look down in your notes and look at the sentence you write down. Read it with me. One, two, three. Never underestimate the damage one person can do to the organization. Say it again. Never underestimate the damage one person can do to the organization. I was looking out there because some of you aren't moving your lips. You're not reading what I just asked you to read. Now, now let, me, let me explain this because it might help somebody down the road. As soon as I say this, some of you are going to go, yep. One person can take down an organization. It can one person can take down a church. One person can take down a team. One person can take down the marriage. One person can take down the family. We all know that, right? Everybody knows this. One person. Now, <clears throat> let me re go back in time. Some of you were here at that time. Most of you were not here at that time. But I've gone through this situation multiple times. I've been here almost 32 years, started this church in my home in 19, uh, you know, actually in 1992, we went public. And um, 
One of the times that this happened to us, um, what was, you know, was wild about it. it, it was the last time that I was teaching through Joshua verse by verse. And when I experienced it, and I was going through this, we're going through it as a church because of one person, and then I, I come to this chapter, and I remember reading the statement that I had you write down. Never underestimate the damage that one person can do to the entire organization. It burned in me. I have never forgotten that. It was Warren Wiersbe, the commentator. He said that. And boy, did it ring true. Now, <clears throat> let me talk to anybody that's in leadership or you deal with things like this. Every so often, you got to remove people. Any amens? You just have to do it. You got, you're a problem person? You have to do it. Now, when you remove them, are they going to talk nice about you? No, they're not. They're going to really, really start talking bad about you. Trust me. They've, I've, I've been talked bad about so, so many times over the 32 years. And it's, it's weird that it's always Christians. They're supposed to be loving. You know. <clears throat> now, when you have to do this, and they start talking bad about you, what you really have to do as a leader is zip it. And this is one thing I learned. When I first learned this, I did not learn it by my own choosing. I was told by the authorities that I had to zip it. Authorities. And so I had to just keep my mouth shut. While I kept my mouth shut, there were some of the craziest lies being spread about me. It was absolutely insane. I'm thinking, how can somebody think this stuff up, you know? But I just kept my mouth shut. Now, the reason I tell you this is because, you know, the one person can bring down the organization. You've got to remove them or they'll take your organization down. But as you remove them, you keep a tight lip. And here's what I learned. I learned that you must trust God in those times. If you've done the right thing and you're doing the right thing, you've got to trust God that God's going to bring you through this. That God's going to take care of thee. Let me tell you something that happened in this one particular situation that went on for like two to three years. Somebody wrote me a letter. It was about 2003. In the letter, it was a teenager. They were chastising me for releasing this person telling me that this person is the best thing the church ever had, all that kind of stuff. They don't even know what this person's done. And I had to keep my mouth shut because I knew the right thing. So then about a year and a half or a year go by, and everything comes out. I never said it, but it had to come out. And when it came out, do you think I ever got a letter from that teenager saying, I'm so sorry? For saying that, you were right. It was the right thing to do what you had to do. You think I ever got a letter back? No. You're never going to get a letter back. People are not going to apologize. They're not going to do it. Don't expect it. But you, when you go through things like that, you have to understand, if this person is going to take down the organization, you just got to do it. Because they are the poison in the system that will destroy everything. And you got to have the guts to do it. Because if you don't do it, it's going to take you down. So never underestimate the damage one person can do to the organization. And I'll even add that when you have to do that, it's very lonely at the top. It's very lonely at the top. 
Because I think the stats prove out, they do surveys on everything these days, that when one person starts, has, wants a bad mouth, you as a person or a church, they're going to tell 33 people. That's the stats. They're going to tell 33 people. Isn't that wild? No, it's wild they even have a stat on that, right? Anyway, but anyway, let, let me see. Let's see. So let's see. Let's move on. Let's see what happened to the nation because of this man's unfaithfulness. Chapter 7, verse 2 and 3. It says, Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai. Now, this is telling you what's going on, which is near Beth Avon, east of Beth El, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai. They returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up. Only about two or 3,000 men need to go up. To Ai, do not make all the people toil up there, for they are, they are, there's just a few of these people. Now, in other words, here's the what. Joshua, I know we're going to attack the next city. So Joshua, send spies. Go spy out the land. Go, go check this thing out. Ai sits about 15 miles from Jericho. It is a little higher elevation in the mountains. That's why it says in uh, verse 2, the men went up to Ai at about 1,700 feet above sea level. Now, these areas are near uh, the, the Jordan River, which is Dead Sea. So these are low areas on the planet. So you're going about 1,700 feet above sea level. Now, he's a good leader. He's a smart leader. So he does what a smart general always does. He sends out what? Sends out spies. He sends out spies to go check it out. In fact, I put the verse in there. We don't have to turn there. Luke 14, 31. If you're a king and you're going to go out to wage war against another king, you want to make sure that you can win that war. You want to make sure what's going on so you know how to prepare for these things. So the spies go. They check it out. They return. And they tell Joshua, they, they debrief, they tell Joshua this, piece of cake. This is nothing, man. There's a little beep on the radar. We could take this city like nothing. So, so you know what? We don't even need to send the whole army. We'll just send two to 3,000 guys. And it's not said here, but you must assume it. Said, Joshua, you don't even need to bother going yourself. Just stay here. Because he doesn't go. And so they go, send two to 3,000 soldiers. Because, you know, it's a piece of cake. Now let's read verse 4 and 5. So about 3,000 men from the people went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. They go up to fight and they start running. The Israelites run. Verse 5. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down on the descent. So the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Now, let me give you the good part, Let me give you the, then I'll give you the bad part. The good part is this. Joshua has just defeated Jericho. And you strike while the iron is what? Is hot. You got the enemy backpedaling, you want to keep going. When the windows of opportunity open, you want to keep going. It makes a lot of sense to me anyway. Now, I, I was, um, I like, anybody like history? I like history. So I like to watch any historical kind of pieces. I just really enjoy it and... It was last year or the year before on the History Channel. Anybody watch the series on Grant, just called Grant? You saw it? I watched it twice. I just, because I like Ulysses S. Grant. And by the way, U.S. Grant and Ulysses S. Grant, 
the U.S., the S, that's not his initial, by the way. I just found this out in that series. When he went to West Point, I think it was West Point he went to, he, um, they, the application had the wrong, had him as U.S., and that wasn't his middle name. The S wasn't his middle initial. But they said, if you don't keep that, then you're not going to get enrolled here. So he had to keep it. So it's not U.S., but it turned, they ended up calling him U.S. Unconditional Surrender Grant. And that's the way the history goes. Well, this guy, Grant, he was one tough cookie, and I really like him. And, and, you know, and you know what he did? This is why it's so insane why they tore down his statue three years ago somewhere. Are you kidding me? Do you know what this guy did? That just shows you people don't know anything about history anymore. So he's winning the Southern Theater out there against the Confederates, and they can't stop Robert E. Lee in the North. They can't stop him. Robert E. Lee's seasoned general, and so Lincoln knows he's got to do something, and he brings Grant, because Grant keeps winning. Brings Grant to the North. And Grant goes head on with Robert E. Lee. And Grant starts to win. And he starts to push Robert E. Lee back. One big decisive battle, I'll just never forget it. When they win, then General uh, Grant's other generals come alongside him and say, it was a great victory. Let the men rest. Let's just rest and recoup because the men are tired. And Grant says, the enemy's just as tired. We will attack again. And we will attack immediately. Which is like, whoa. I was like, man, yeah, U.S. Grant, I like you a lot. And they fight and they battle and they push back. And Robert E. Lee eventually surrenders. He wins. You got to strike while it's hot. When the enemy's backpedaling, you got to go after it. Amen? Amen? So that's what he's doing right here. Now, that's the good part. What's the bad part? The bad part is this. Let's send two to 3,000 men. Is that smart? Better question. Did Joshua listen to God or to the spies? He listens to the spies. Question. Did he tell the spies, go spy it out and then come and tell me what I should do? Is that what he asked them? No. He said, just go spy it out. But they spy it out, come back, and they tell him, here's what you need to do. Wrong move right there, right? They weren't to tell him how to attack or how many men. They were just to tell him what the city's all about and leave him and God to tell him what needs to be done. But they look at it, and they say, ah, piece of cake. Now, in verse 3, we read that in their voices, uh, their voices say, we only need about two or 3,000 men. So what do you hear in their voices? The answer, presumption. They were presuming. They were presuming that they could win, that this would be easy to take. Now, quickly, not in your notes, but I want to just show you a verse. Look at Psalm 19 to your right. I'm going to hit it and run right back. Psalm 19. It's not in your notes, but at that, well, I'll give you this verse. Psalm 19. When you're in Psalm 19, say I'm there. Psalm's right before Revelation. Bad, Jim. Psalm 19, verse 13 says this. It says, also... Keep this David speaking. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Where we presume, 1913. Where we presume. And so it's, you can come back to Joshua Jefferson. So their problem is they're presuming. We only need two, 3,000 men. We'd take the city down like nothing. Question, why do they underestimate the, underestimate the enemy? Why do they do this? Same reason we do. In your notes, they underestimate the enemy because first off, comparison. Comparison. What are they comparing AI to? Jericho. 
And when you compare the two together, AI is so much easier than Jericho. Now, question, thought, whatever. When you and I, comparison is one of the dumbest things we can do, by the way. When we compare ourselves to others, we're going to go end up one of two directions, right? Either we're going to think, I'm so good because look where they are. I'm so we're going to be arrogant. Or we're going to go the other way and we're going to feel inferior because look what they're accomplishing, what they're doing. So we're either going to be arrogant or we're going to feel inferior. That's why comparison is not a wise way to go. Your strive, your motive, your direction is always, I want to be like Christ. And you compare to nothing else. Because if you compare, it's going to end up one way, it's going to end up the other. So comparison is doing them in. The other thing is this. They underestimate the enemy because of self-confidence. Self-confidence is good, but I'm not so sure about self-confidence. Because eventually self-confidence is going to lead to a loss of self-confidence. Amen? Because we really need God to be the one who's directing us. Joshua doesn't ask God what to do, so he's self-confident. Now, look at just really quickly, turn over to John chapter 15, New Testament Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Just hit a verse here, and then we'll... Just to, to look at, you know, dependency on God and versus self-confidence. <clears throat> Tell me amen when you're there in John 15. Amen. Okay, I still hear pages. Okay, look at verse 5. And this is that real cool chapter, and I'm the vine, and you guys are the branches, right? Yeah. So we're branches, we're dependent, we've got to be in the vine, in the stump, to have life from Jesus. He's, Jesus is the stump, he's the vine. We've got to be connected to him. Now, verse 5, Jesus says, um, and by the way, Jesus is speaking this as they're walking from the upper room last supper and they're walking in the nighttime in the full moon up to the Mount of Olives where he's going to be betrayed. So he's saying these things as they're walking. Imagine as he walks. And by, can I give you another, by the way? I just, I just popped in my mind. When they're walking in the moonlight, and if you've ever been to Israel and you go down, and I know there was, I think, a bridge in his time from the city across to the Mount of Olives area because there's a, the Valley Kidron there. But as they're walking, let's say they walk down the valley and they're walking and he's saying these things in the moonlight. The temple is so big at the time. You can see the doors of the temple. And he says, I'm the vine. We know before he said, I'm the door. He says, I'm the vine. And the doors of the temple are huge. And on the doors of the temple at that time, you have vine, big old massive vines, gold, with clusters of gold grapes, and the clusters are as big, tall as a man. And so when he says, I am the vine, you are the branches, they could see the temple doors in the moonlight as he walks up the Mount of Olives that night. Could that be like Twilight zone or what? You know, that was like so cool. You know, what he's saying is, look, I'm the door. I'm the vine. This is not where you go anymore. I'm here. You know, I better stop because I got to stand this here. But verse 5 says, I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides. Say abides. That's a big word there. In me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And you say, well, people accomplish a lot. Not eternally. Not with eternal value. If you're going to do something of eternal value, there's, always, there's a difference between a good idea and a God idea, right? Always remember that. And so you want, this is eternal things. Apart from you cannot accomplish long-term eternal things whatsoever. It's a dependency verse. 
that you must depend on me in everything you do. And the moment you and I step out in an arrogant thing, and, oh, we don't need two, three thousand men, overconfidence, you know, we know what we're doing here, then we're going to lose. Because now we're not dependent on God anymore. Now, back to Joshua chapter 7. Now, I want to say one more thing about the verses we just read, and that's this. Um, when, when they didn't depend on God, soldiers die. How many died? Do you remember reading how, much, how many died? 36. 36 families lost a loved one because of that. The other thing we see here is they run away from AI in fear. Now fear grips the camp. And because fear grips the camp, now we find that their hearts melted. The word melted means to, literally means to dissolve. They've lost heart. Where once they were a bold fighting unit against Jericho, now guess what? In a moment, in just one moment, they've lost heart. We all know this from life experience, do we not? It is very easy to lose confidence, is it not? We can suffer a failure or a defeat somewhere, and it can really jolt our thinking into thinking and not believing we could actually do this or God wants this for us anymore. And you always got to watch your thinking. You got to be careful because the enemy, if he can get in our head, boy, he's got us. Now, notice in verse 27 of chapter 6. It says, at the end of chapter 6, because we're in chapter 7, after they went beat. Take Jericho. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land, right? Is Joshua magnified? And now he's mortified. He was magnified, and now he's mortified. And now fear's gripping the camp. So now he's got to fix it. How do we fix it? In your notes, how do we fix it? Two things, and it'll continue on next week. Bless you out there. Number one, humble ourselves before God. Humble ourselves before God. Before I read the verse, let me, let me share this. You know, I think everybody, we, we hear a lot of it. People say they always seem to know what to do, huh? We know what to do, right? In any situation. And we all know what to do until we don't know what to do. Right? We all know what to do until we don't know what to do. And in those moments when we don't know what to do, that becomes a very crisis, directional, dependency or lack thereof moment. If I don't believe in God, if I don't have God as that focal point, as the foundation of my life, and I don't know what to do, I'm in big trouble, am I not? Because I have no bearings anywhere. I have no foundation of the Word of God. I have none of those things. Which in reality, if you think about it, should drive a person to God. But it doesn't. I'm just going to go with what I think and what I feel. I don't know how to fix it, but I'm going to give it a shot. But as a believer, when I don't know what to do, when I get to those moments in my life, and they come periodically, I have a foundation. I have somewhere where I can turn. I have something I can look back on. I have something that guides and directs me in the situations in my life when I do not know what to do. And that's a very secure thought and feeling, is it not? I think it's a great thing. Now, look at verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes, 
Because remember, they just lost an easy battle. He tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. Both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Now he's humbling himself. Now notice, he tears his clothes. That's a sign of mourning in that day. Okay, don't do that in church at any time, okay? But he tears his clothes, sign of mourning. He also falls on the ground, throws dust on his head. What does that mean? He, it's a sign of brokenness before God. But notice the difference this time. Before the battle of Ai and now after the loss of Ai. Not only does he tear his clothes and fall to the earth, what's he facing when he does that? Verse 6, what's he facing? The ark of the Lord. It's a whole different ballgame now. What has he realized in his heart? I have walked away from God, done it my way, and my way doesn't work. And now I don't know what to do, and if I'm smart, I'm going to seek God and what to do. If I'm dumb, I'm going to keep doing it my way and keep messing it up. And so he falls down before God, and he tears his robe, and he throws dust on his head. Now, let me show you something that's not stated that I like, and it's not written, it's not stated in here, and that's this, because here is great leadership, guys. This is the kind of leadership you want to follow. Does he sit there and say, uh, soldier, you bunch of, you're not soldiers, you ran from AI. Did they say that? Never seen him say that. Does he criticize, you guys losing heart, you bunch of losers? Did he say that? Does he say, you know what, there's two million of us, I'm going to go get some, two, I'm going to order two million self-help books on Amazon, you guys better read them, because you need a lot of self-help. Does he do anything like that? No. Does, in other words, is he blaming anyone out there for the defeat? No. Me too. And you know I like to harp on this stuff. That's what a real man looks like. That's what a real woman looks like. I'll throw women in there. But a real man looks like. A real man takes responsibility. A real man doesn't blame. Blame is a part of the corruption and the fall. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. This is what a real man looks like. And every woman wants to, every real woman wants to find a real man. Not a blamer. Not an insecure person. Not someone that just does what they want to do, messes everything up, and then blames everybody else. They want, this is what a real man looks like. Now, the first step to fixing anything that's gone wrong in our life is humility. How different would it have been had Joshua humbled himself before God before the battle of Ai? Man, it would have been way different, but it isn't. So now, after the fact, he says, not working. I must, I'm doing something wrong here. i got to say, God, what are, you tell, what, are you, what are you telling me? Now, the second thing he's going to do to fix it is he's going to pray. Number two is pray. Now, seven, verses 7, 8, and 9 say this. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord, God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. O oh Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? Verse 9, for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it, hear of it, and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what 
will you do for your great name? Whoa. Now, let me tell you one of the things I like about the Bible. It doesn't hide anything. It always tells you the weaknesses and the strengths of the person, doesn't it? It didn't hide David's adultery, right? It didn't hide Moses hitting the rock the second time when God said to speak to the rock. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't hide Peter doubting. It doesn't hide Abraham when he's, he's letting his wife go off to be sold to somebody, the wife of the Pharaoh in Egypt. It doesn't hide any of that stuff. I love that. I can relate to that stuff. It doesn't hide anything. By the way, do you know why people say, and I gave you evidence before of that the Israelites were in Egypt at the time of the Exodus. We talked, remember we talked about that last week? Okay, good. Do you know why there's not a bunch of hieroglyphics all over Egypt about the Israelites, two million people leaving Egypt? You know why it's not written anywhere out there? Because a Pharaoh is not going to show weakness. He's always going to show strength. If you read up on the pharaohs and things that were written that they had written about them, these guys are saying, by themselves, I killed 10 lions right in one shot. And there are all these amazing things that you know did not happen. And so they're never, ever going to write anything back in those days about a guy with a shepherd's staff coming and delivering and forcing Pharaoh to bow his knee and letting two million people leave. They're never going to write that kind of stuff. They're not going to be honest. But the Bible is very honest about the weaknesses and the strength of people, and we can relate with those weaknesses. Amen to that one? It's a really great thing. Now, let me show you how I can relate, and I think we can all relate to old Joshua in this moment. In his prayer, in his talk to God, verses 7 and 9 specifically, there's a sane prayer, S-A-N-E, and there's an insane prayer. You ever prayed an insane prayer? Those are the kind you just mumble under your breath because you're going out of your mind because you already messed it up so bad you don't know what to do anymore. But there's a sane prayer. There's an insane prayer. Okay, the sane prayer is verse 9. God, I'm worried about your great name. That's a good prayer, right? Moses prayed that many times. You know, your great name. And that's a good thing. You worry about God's great name. You live your life for God to glorify God's great name. You don't want to shame the name of God by your lifestyle. That's a sane prayer. Now, there's an insane prayer, and you find that one in verse 7. Notice the insane prayer within the sane prayer. He says, oh, oh Lord, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan only to deliver us to the hand of the Amorites to destroy us if only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan? Is that insane? I think it's kind of insane. Have we heard that prayer before? Yeah, we did. We heard it before back in Numbers. And in your notes, I have Numbers 13. It should say Numbers 14. It's a, I messed up on that one. In fact, why don't we just turn there? Yeah. And you're not coming back, so you don't have to worry about this. Look at Numbers 14. It's to your left, just a few little books here. You're already there? Man, you beat me there, man. I feel so inferior now. Okay, watch. This is after... And this is the reason why they spend 40 years in the desert. But this is after the, sp- the 12 spies come back and give a bad report, and there's giants in the land, and a whole shot. Look at chapter 14 of Numbers, verses 1 through 3. He says, uh, Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses, because leadership is fun. 
And Aaron and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this desert wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? It's and now Joshua here, who has seen all the miracles in Egypt, Joshua, who's won the battles through the desert, Joshua, who now leads, and he sees the Jordan River part at flood season, Joshua, who saw the wall of Jericho fall down, all these things are happening, and now Joshua's praying an insane prayer in his head, oh my gosh, why did we ever cross the Jordan? Do you get what he's, what's going on here? No, really. He's retreating in his head. He's going back because he has made a mistake, his mistake, because he listened to humans rather than to what God wanted him to do. You know what it tells me? And this is where I got to end, guys, but I'm, I'm, almost, I'm almost near the end. Joshua still has some old thinking, doesn't he? There's some old stinking thinking still in his head. There's something he heard 40 years earlier. The complaining, oh my gosh, it would be, it'd be better if we go back and hadn't come here for this. And now we find what trials and crisis, one of the great benefits of a trial and a crisis and the mumblings of our words under our voice, and that is this, the trials and crisis that God let us go through, it exposes what's really in our heart. Listen to your self-talk because your self-talk will tell you it, it is a beautiful um, advertisement of the things, the old ways of thinking that still dwell in your mind. And this still dwells in the mind of Joshua in that insane prayer within the sane prayer of God, your name is important here. Your name is important. God reveals it. So we can erase that old thinking. So we can walk in new thinking. Well, Jim, why do I need that? Because in Jeremiah 17, 9, in fact, turn there. We'll finish by reading that verse. Jeremiah 17, it's the last verse in your notes. Here's why this is important. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. This is the last verse. We'll close here. This is something that God says about our hearts and our ability to understand and know what's in our hearts. Verse 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else. Any amens on that? Okay. And is desperately sick. Any bigger amens on that? Who can understand it? Who can understand it? What he's telling us is, as much as we can understand ourselves, we can't fully understand ourselves. Only God can fully understand us. And there's some thinking, and we can apply that within the concept of, there are some old stinking thinkings from long ago still, that when the trial or the situation comes up, it exposes, listen to that self-talk, listen to the thoughts you're thinking, it exposes old ways of thinking and operating that you do not want to walk in anymore. And it's exposing Joshua. And Joshua's got to fix it. Because they're there because God wants them there. Not to go back over the 
Jordan. And God does the same thing in your life and in my life too. So we'll pause here. We'll pick it up here next time. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord God, for your goodness. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenges of it. Thank you for that, God, you don't pull any punches and you show exactly the fragility and the weaknesses of humankind so we can relate. Father, we just pray that everything we said or anything that was said tonight that applies to us, that God, it helps us to move forward in our life for you. And let us always remember that we are dependent people upon you, Jesus. We're just branches. Apart from you, we could do nothing of eternal value. And any time we start to disconnect from you, things start to die around us. Thank you, Lord God. In Jesus' name we pray and we all said. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCC Norco, or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.